In this episode, I'm joined by Dean Slater, meditation teacher and best-selling author of several books, including his most recent, The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, Finding Nirvana in the Classics. Dean recounts his fortunate upbringing, how he began to realize he had an unusually fast mind, and the early mystical experiences that would change his life in profound ways. Dean talks about his parents' radical left activism and how one event caused him to re-examine his family's beliefs. Dean also shares the arc of his spiritual life, including his psychedelic sadhu period, his 20 years as a teacher of transcendental meditation, while teaching English at the illustrious Pingree School, his studies in Buddhism and Dzogchen, and why he now considers himself to be a spiritual elder. So without further ado, Dean Slyter. Dean Slyter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you today. Having uh, just finished reading your latest release, A Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. So first of all, congratulations on oh, your thanks so new much. Book. No, no, thank you. I'm very excited about finally getting this one written. This one was germinating literally for over 45 years. And I, I knew I had to write this. I knew I had to put this into the world. So I, I'm very glad to have it done. We'll get into your biography, I think, um, uh, sequentially, in a mo chronologically in a moment. But the story of this book is quite interesting. It came from what I understand from your teaching at the Pingree School. Yes, I taught for 33 years at the Pingree School, which is a very sort of top-notch independent school in New Jersey. And um, I had already, you know, my whole adult life practically, I've been teaching meditation and, you know, pretty seriously hell-bent for leather on the Enlightenment path. And so very naturally those two things cross-germinated, um, cross-fertilized, and you know, you come back year after year, you're teaching Huckleberry Finn again, you're teaching Macbeth again, you're teaching The Great Gatsby again, and if you're halfway awake, you, you keep getting deeper into them, and if you're pursuing Dharma awakening, as I was also doing, they start to, you start to see, gee, when Huck Finn rose into the middle of the Mississippi River, with his after evading his drunken murderous father and finally relaxes and lies down on his back and has a little smoke out of his pipe and looks up into the moonlight and he says the sky looks ever so deep when you lay on your back in the moonshine i never knowed it before i went whoa that's the initiation into the transcendent Am I the first person who's seeing this? I don't know, but I best, I guess I better write it down. Yeah, it's fascinating. And you go through many, many of the great favorite authors that we've, we've read and or at least wish to read or would right. like to read. And maybe we have them on the show. <laughs> or, you know? or we're and, supposed to read. Yeah. And that was the case actually for you. We will get to your biography, but um, mm -hmm. with Moby Dick, right? Yes. Yes, Moby Dick, and I start the chapter with uh, by coming clean uh, that for my 33 years of teaching school, every year I would make a little speech to my American Lit class about Moby Dick and what a great book it is, and you've got to read this one before you die, and I had never read it. And so finally my karma caught up to me that in order to write this book, uh, I had to read Moby Dick, and fortunately I found out I had not been lying all those years that it really 
it was that great and greater and and weirder and funnier actually hmm. yeah i think actually this this book dharma guides uh, dharma bum's guide to western literature it it serves a few purposes and one of them is uh, there are certainly some some books in there that i haven't read and that you give a nice overview not only of the book and 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 then point to some dharma interpretations from those books but also you, you often talk about the life of the author and the ways in which that person's life is reflected in the text or perhaps has some dharma themes too and i think so it's a good setup um for those books a sort of interesting primer or jumping off point um, yeah, I, I want think, to read those books later. Yeah, I, I tried to write it in such a way that even if you had not read a given book, the chapter would still make sense. It would give you the information needed. And in some cases, two things I, I love, I'm, I'm starting to get, the book just came out in late March, and I'm, I'm starting to get feedback from a number of readers. And two things I love hearing. One is, oh, you made me want to go out and read Virginia Woolf. You made right. me want to go and read Gerard Manley Hopkins. And the other is, uh, gee, I wish you'd been my English teacher. So, so that's, that's really lovely. But, but about the lives of, of the writers, I think that in, in literature, in the arts generally, and, um, and for that matter, in the spiritual world, it's really important to emphasize that all this stuff comes through people. You know, it comes through humans who had to get up in the morning and feel groggy and cranky, just like the rest of us, uh, who had hopes, who had disappointments. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to think of, uh, people tend to maybe come through school and think of Shakespeare as an institution rather than a person. And in the same way, to think of the Buddha or, or Jesus as institutions, as these rarefied entities that they, you know, weren't people who, you know, belch and, belched and farted like the rest of us. Uh, and I think that's important to know. And that's a theme that I'd like to come back to later, uh, that you, you raise, uh, particularly in, the, in the, the Great Gatsby, talking about looking mm -hmm. for that sense of completeness outside of ourselves and, and, and that, you know, that, the great yearning, as you describe, um, that Gatsby has. But let's come back to that a bit later. Um, okay. Your biography. So can you contextualize a bit your upbringing? What, what was your family context and, and how did you begin life? Well, I began life um, as uh, the, 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 the middle of three brothers. There was a, then a sister who came along some years later, um, a, a middle class um, uh, house of leftist political activists uh, on Long Island. Uh, we moved when I was six to California. My father was a musician, um, later uh, became a lawyer. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I was very fortunate. A lot of people, in order for them to come to uh, the spiritual path, have to have really bad things happen to them. I think a lot of people to really take the awakening path seriously need to bottom out. They, they have, it has to be a romantic crisis, a, a, a health crisis, something. I was lucky. Um, you know, some tough things have happened to me, but mostly I've had a pretty easy life. This, uh, you know, I mean, you know, my, my parents had some arguments, but nothing terrible. Uh, and um, so 
Yeah, I grew up in that way. I was uh, a super smart kid in school. I remember when I was a first or second grade, I can remember other kids when I would be responding to the teacher's questions, other kids turning around and looking at me like, and it was very clear to me, they thought I had this special thing inside my skull that they didn't have some superpower that al allowed me to understand things. But what I could see very clearly was it was not that I had something that they lacked. It was the opposite. I could see that in their trying to process information, it was like there was obscuration there. It was like they were having to drag it through a certain quantity of peanut butter and sawdust, and I had empty space. Um, and, and somehow that was, so for some reason, I, I had a lot of empty space all along that uh, allowed me to kind of catch on to things quickly. I fell in love with words and literature early on. And because of some um, spontaneous experiences in childhood, I caught on to the, the spiritual path early on. Um, it, it, one that I don't talk about in the book, but I think you'll find this interesting. Um, because it's not as dramatic as the one I talk about in the, the, the book. It was more subtle and kept coming and going was a sense that um, I didn't have a face, right? And that other people had faces. It was as if other people had a seam down the, the middle of the front of them that was closed and mine had been left open. And that would come and go and it would, would confuse me that other people would talk to me as if I was just like them, as if I was also closed in the front. Couldn't they see that wow, this was, was wide open? Now, if my insight had been deeper, I would have realized that they were all actually open too. <laughs> they, they just didn't realize it. But, but so that came and went. And then there was the, the very dramatic experience that I talk about at the beginning of the book where one day, um, because despite this kind of this lovely openness, emptiness, there was also a lot of churning going on, um, kind of free-floating anxiety. And one day when I was 11 or 12, my mom sent me out to the garage to clear out all the books and uh, comic books and toys that my brothers and I had left there because we were going to go to something that existed in those days called a drive-in movie. And um, I, um, so I go out to the garage. My mind is churning as usual. What about this? What about that? The next thing that I pick up and the, there's a picture of it in here in the book. The next thing I pick up is a copy of Mad Magazine. And on the cover, as usual, is their idiot mascot, Alfred E. Newman, with his, his, his silly grin and his motto, What? Me worry? And suddenly, this is what, what in Hindu tradition is called Mahavakya, great utterance which in Hindu tradition uh, usually is something like aham brahmasmi, right? I am Brahman, I am the infinite, or tatvamasi, thou art that, right? But in my case, the Mahavakya was, what, me worry? And what I realized was this churning is a thing 
It's not just the, the life. It's a thing that I'm doing. It's not being done to me. It's called worry. And because I'm doing it, I can stop doing it. And I took my foot off that pedal and everything went deliciously, boundlessly silent. And it was really what later on I would, after doing some reading some years later, what I would describe as just full-blown, you know, cut it with a knife, eat it with a spoon, samadhi experience. So that few things like that caught my attention. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. I'm wondering, you must have uh, speculated about this or, 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 or considered this. What do you think the peanut butter and sawdust you use that metaphor. Mm. What is that? Hmm. Boy, that's a good question, because it's not only the obscuration. I mean, looking at it now, I would say whatever it is, it's not only the obscuration to being able to process the, the information that you're, you're learning, you know, in the second grade. Um, but it's the obscuration to, to perceiving directly our own true nature which is boundlessness. Um, and, you know, I, actually, it's a great mystery because, because you know, what, the, what the, the wisdom traditions conclude is that that stuff, it has no substance. It, it, it has no substance. When, when, you know, every, all the Enlightenment stories have a moment you know, it's kind of the Homer Simpson moment, the dope moment, which is, how did I ever miss this? How did I, how did I ever, how did I not see that I did not need any further objective experience? I didn't have to have anything added to or subtracted from the way I was experiencing things all the time. Here, it was all boundlessness all along. How did I fail to perceive that? So it's, it's kind of a kind of a mystery. Mm. I do want to mention, however, that, um, you know, I used to be very um, uh, hesitant about sharing some of these, these childhood personal experiences uh, or any kind of personal awakening experiences because uh, it's too easy for to for that to be interpreted as as an assertion that, oh, I'm special. Uh, and I think really this stuff happens to most people um, in one way or another, uh, especially in childhood, but that just some of us, it kind of got our attention more. I, I think some people just kind of dismiss it. They forget about it. In fact, I, in my chapter on Hemingway, uh, I, I, where I discuss A Farewell to Arms, which is a lot of it is based very closely on Hemingway's own experience as a volunteer driving an ambulance for the Italian army in the First World War. And there's a part where the, the hero uh, is hit with shrapnel, with mortar fire, as Hemingway was, and he has a near-death experience. He essentially dies, and Hemingway describes it so clearly and intimately that you know only someone who had experienced that could describe it that way. And then at the end of it, you, you know, he breathes again and slides back into his body. Just classic near-death experience description. But as you know from talking to so many people on the awakening path, Generally, they have this kind of near-death experience, and it catches their attention. They go, 
oh, death isn't so-called death. There's nothing tragic about it. It's, oh, it's very expansive. It's, right? Whereas for uh, the hero of A Farewell to Arms, as apparently for Hemingway as well, it's completely forgotten. You know, the next chapter, he's great back into deeply into war and whiskey and women and and bemoaning all the death around him and it's never mentioned again you know it seems that uh, from your description there you noticed you were processing things a, a bit faster than the others you were less inhibited in your in your processing speed that's and and it seemed they had peanut butter and sawdust in there you know yeah. obscuring yeah. Uh, using that word obscuration yes um yeah, I'm wondering a few things, actually. And you, you've said that that not only allows you to engage with your academic studies at school mm -hmm. uh, better, than, better than others, but also you said that maybe this is the same uh, dimension that opens, opens one up to spiritual insights, as we mm -hmm. call them, right? mystical mm -hmm. insights and so on. Have you found or noticed a certain talent or inclination or disp disposition um, throughout your meditative career? Did, did states come easier to you? Uh, did experiences uh, come easier to you than your colleagues who are also on that path? Did you find your experience in school, in other words, looking around at the other mm. students and them looking mm. back at you, did you find that mirrored in your own spiritual path? Mm. No, not really, not really. <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, I, I would say that I, I, I talked a better game uh -huh. <laughs> you know and and sometimes maybe my 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 talking about the 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 stuff outpaced the actual experience um and but but certain kinds of things you know it's very it was very interesting uh teaching all my years teaching english at this prep school uh i also taught uh, meditation there. I got meditation programs going. In particular, I started um, an elective course for juniors and seniors called, uh, you know, 11th and 12th graders called Literature of Enlightenment. And there we read uh, the Gospel according to Thomas, we read Salinger, we read Kerouac, we read uh, um, uh, Zen stories, Zen flesh, Zen bones, uh, the Plato symposium. It was just wonderful. And um, the everyone knew my classroom because it was the one that had, instead of rows of straight back wooden desk chairs, it had a circle of comfy couches because our uh, lab work so-called was a lot of meditation. And actually every course that I taught there there, there turned out to be a way to sneak meditation in there. When I taught American Lit, we started with the Transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau, and you can't understand the Transcendentalists without transcending. So, you know, we, and, and it was great because once I led the kids in a 15-minute meditation, then every day for the rest of the year, as they come in, they'd say, Mr. Slider, can we meditate today? I'd say, well, if we really knuckle down on our work, maybe on Friday, right? Um, and what I discovered was that a teenagers take to meditation quicker than adults in general and of the teenagers the ones who get it right away are the jocks and the ones who take a little longer are the valedictorians 
okay? Because the jocks are used to processing things in a simple, direct way. It doesn't all have to get filtered through the intellect. They're, they're used to experiencing things viscerally, whereas the, the valedictorians, you, you know, have to kind of argue with themselves about it a little more before they <laughs> surrender. Mm, that's very interesting. A couple more questions about that period of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, you're mentioning that this this difference you you noticed between yourself and your classmates um, in processing speed. Mm -hmm. um, did you notice what what was your emotional and social, I suppose, development like at that time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, there were two factors uh, in addition, two major factors in addition to the one that you're thinking of. Uh, one is that we moved several times. Uh, when, when I was six, we left Long Island. We moved to Cedar Hill, Missouri, a little rural area, at least at the time, outside of St. Louis, where my father, who was an oboe player, played a season with the St. Louis Symphony. And then we moved to California, Southern California. But in the next few years, we moved a number of times. So I was always the new kid. And then the second thing was that they, they, the school pretty soon skipped me a grade. So I was a year younger than, than the other kids. Um, and I think that being the new kid in particular was, you know, where everyone's already formed their cliques and so forth. Uh, and, you know, how do I deal with this? And what I discovered was I could deal with it by being clever and funny. Um, and that's <laughs> pretty stood me in pretty good stead ever since. Also, the fact that I was the middle of three brothers. Uh, you learn to be, you learn, you learn fast footwork <laughs> in that situation. You're, you're in the middle of all the cross currents. Yeah, very interesting. I'm curious, you mentioned your, your parents were, uh, you said leftist activists. Y yeah. Yeah, uh, could you say a little about that and to what degree that, that's influenced you? Uh, I know. Do, uh, are you uh, yourself? Do you consider yourself to be following in that tradition, or uh, have you parted from that? Have you nuanced it to some degree? It seems you have actually. Reading yeah. um, the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature, it's it's uh, quite nuanced. Your 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 read on things. So I'm curious about that aspect too. Yeah, yeah. I love your question, Steve. By the way, I, <laughs> really, um, you're 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 digging into nuances of the story that other people have not done, and I, I'm enjoying this a lot. Thank you. Just wanted wanted to mention that. Um, yeah, we we my my mom in particular um, was always um, uh, in, in. I mean, they were both involved in. Um, uh, 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 peace activism and in um, uh, in particular one of the, there was a number of organizations they were involved with later on uh, in the early 70s uh, they hosted the the local chapter of the Friends of the Black Panthers uh, which met in their living room that was interesting in the, in a very sub suburban white uh, area of, of Los Angeles um, Earlier, my mom was very active in the Committee to Secure Justice for Morton Sobel. Now, Morton Sobel is a now pretty much forgotten historical figure. He was the co-defendant of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. 
And after Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed, uh, Ro um, uh, Sobel was, was in prison on, on a long prison sentence. And uh, I remember my mom going on fundraising activities with Sobel's wife while I would be home playing with Sobel's son. Um, and, uh, you know, so I kind of grew up with this um, doctrine of uh, how these people had been uh, persecuted unfairly, uh, persecuted for being supposedly involved in seditious activity, uh, and that, you know, not so coincidentally, they were all Jewish, and that, that the people attacking them were, were right-wingers and some anti-Semitism going on there and so on and so forth. Um, Fast-forwarding to about, I think it was 1967 or 1968, at this point, I'm in San Francisco. I've completed one year of college and I've dropped out. I'm a full-on hippie, uh, you know, just kind of a psychedelic sadhu. Um, and I believe I was walking through the, the Fleischacker Zoo in San Francisco one morning, and I saw a newspaper headline or heard news on someone's radio that Morton Sobel had been released. And that was sort of a, a just a big moment for me. But even more significant, some years later, um, Sobel uh, came clean and he said, yeah, I was guilty all along. And there's been some some evidence in recent years indicating that yeah, Julius or and Ethel or, or certainly Julius uh, was uh, he, he did what he was accused of doing, helping to steal atomic secrets, and it may and and it was very um, liberating for me to find out that a, a doctrine I'd grown up with was wrong that you know even if you're persecuted by bad people for bad reasons it might turn out that you did what you were accused of doing in this case um finding out you were wrong about something is i keep discovering a precious opportunity because well i'm going to relate it to something that is not going to sound r related initially. Um, I used to play a little bit of saxophone, not very well. In the, the school where I, I taught, I used to sit in with the jazz band. And one day I asked the, the, the band instructor, who's a good friend of mine, Sean McAnally, who's actually a wonderful musician. I said, okay, Sean, what's the deal on improvisation? All right, what, give me the secret. What's the key to improvisation? He says, well... You think of something, and then don't play that. Right? Can you feel that? You th because the moment you think of something, and it's interesting because when you see young jazzers trying to do it, you, as they're playing, you can hear them thinking. You can hear them thinking the, the melody they're improvising. But he said, but the moment you think it, that's already stale. The moment you think it, that's a structure of thought, and that's a, a limited area. And out here, there is the vast, the boundless area that is not inside what you've thought. So you think of something, 
and don't, don't play that, that means you go into free fall. And, that, and it's the wonderful liberation from the, that constriction of, of, of thought structure. And that's why it's so exciting to hear good jazz because they're 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 in free fall and and you can fall them you can follow them into that and you know the beginning of that word free fall is free i saw once an interview with um the drummer who worked with uh with john coltrane and and someone asked him uh well, what was it like to play with coltrane he said you had to be ready to die with the motherfucker <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, for, for that 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 recklessness, that willingness to give up all your handholds. So any time that that comes along, and this is a this is a running gag with my wife and I, um, that because we both know it feels so good to to be right, right? But it's a cheap high. It's it it come it comes at a cost. <laughs> so you know we 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 play at you know because in marriage you you get so many wonderful opportunities to to explore this stuff if you use those opportunities and like you know she'll be sure that whatever we need to buy toothpaste something stupid and I'll be sure we don't or vice versa and then you know it turns out I was right and she'll say Dean you were right and I go ooh ooh say it again <laughs> Can I have ooh. that in writing? <laughs> ooh, ooh, say it again. Faster, faster, right? Um, and, and it's, but because the, 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 real, the real high, the real liberation is to be wrong. Whoa, I was, it was so sure. I've been, I, I find this out when I watch uh, movies. Sometimes I'll experience, uh, there was some scene in a, in a movie I saw 5, 10, 20 years ago. And I love this scene. It was so potent. And I've described that scene to people over and over. And then I watch the movie again after many years and find out the scene's completely different from the way I've been describing it. Now, how many things are there like that in my own life where I don't get a chance to go back to, to a filmed record? Right? How many things that I'm sure of are just because what we do is when we when we're sure of something we're we're in th there's only one thing that's sure and that's not a thing that's 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 the boundlessness that's the nature of existence that's beingness that's the only thing that has absolute status so anytime we're sure of anything we are falsely ascribing that absolute status to something that's relative and that's Basic. That's what's. That's that's idolatry. That's blasphemy, actually, um, and and the reason that it's a sin in Judeo-Christian terms is that it keeps us bound. It seems that that sure, surety, that certainty, that rightness, is one of the great appeals of political doctrines and political positions, be it the left or the right or or any any shade across that whole political spectrum. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. And we have, we, and we have, we have one prominent. I, I won't even say this person's name, uh, but you know, one prominent politician here who discovered he discovered this great trick. Anything he doesn't like, he says fake news. And it's like a superpower. It's and 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 because you know, sorting out 
relative reality and policy stuff and all that's hard work and 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 people are tired of the complexity of the world and trying to figure out what do we need to do about climate and the fine and all that and you can just say fake news these people are are all child molesters but you know the, these easy answers and then it makes them completely immune to evidence they're they they're getting high on that sureness but as i said before it's a cheap high it's like drinking cheap wine you know it'll it'll get you there but there's a lot of collateral damage it's difficult to relinquish that certainty that firm ground especially when one's invested in it through uh, action uh, or identity perhaps one's identities you know or one's indeed family of origin what what do you think has enabled you to uh, explore the uncertainty uh, to, to somehow it seems to thrive in it to a certain extent you seem to have got a taste for it that seems yeah. unusual and a useful thing uh, for uh, especially when we, we do see it seems at least that's what we're told who knows if it's true mm -hmm. we do see political polarization <laughs> and entrenchment and difficulty right. of communicating with people with different so on right. what how have you have you achieved that um, well, it's an ongoing process, you know. Um, uh, I, I, I fall into uh, the, the addiction to being right a, a lot. Uh, and again, you know, uh, marriage is great for that. Uh, um, you know, bat, bat, bachelorhood can be uh, very dangerous. Uh, because you're 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 just left alone with with no <laughs> day all day you can sit around being right with with no one to point out your follies to you, um, so you know there's that teaching school you know I used to come up with thought experiments for my students you know I'd say okay how many of you I I don't care if you're let's say a conservative or a liberal but how many of you would say that you're overall political orientation is pretty much the same as that of your parents and you know 90% of them will raise their hands and I'll say now isn't that interesting notice how sure you feel that obviously any right-thinking person would have politics like one's own now what if you'd been born in the house next door where they have opposite political convictions you would be equally sure that all right-thinking people feel that way you know, and I would just try to come up with things like that to, to soften it up, to relativize it. Also, um, being involved with a number of, of spiritual teachers and, and one of my favorite oxymorons, spiritual organizations, um, uh, where, oh, because, because, you know, I've always had a little bit of a streak of fanaticism. I, I always needed, felt, okay, I have to find the not just a way that works but the way that's the best not only for me but for everyone and the way to express it you know what that i've just you know it's taken me years to to soften up my former conviction that you know there was some magic words if i could just get this this thing phrased just right i could you know come down from the top of the mountain and deliver this message to and everyone who heard it would go yes right of course thank you and of course it doesn't work that way um 
so, but my kind of fanatical drive to find the way has gotten me involved with a number over the years some some teachers i felt okay this is the teacher this is this is the way to teach and you know i i think you know what the <laughs> the end of this story is going to be uh Right and and every t every time I've gotten too comfortable in some doctrinal nest, I've wound up getting kicked out of the nest, and it's always been traumatic, and then it's always been great, just the best thing that could have happened for me. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about that that point. Actually, I've heard you say mm -hmm. that before that every time you get comfortable in a nest, you get kicked out of it. You know mm -hmm. what you were saying earlier reminds me of uh, an author who I know you like, but didn't include Herodotus. He makes that point that every, um, every person prefers his own culture and feels intrinsically somehow, he makes that point, is, is best, you know. Yes. Oh, the Greeks, we feel that we are the best, and the Persians think they're the best, and the Ethiopians mm -hmm. think they're the best, these sorts of nations mm -hmm. that or he was dealing with that, at that time. We all have mm -hmm. that intrinsic sense. <laughs> I, I always thought that was Herodotus being funny, I'm not sure if it was. But, right. But anyway, so uh, let's let's get on that track then. So you dropped out of college, as you said, and for two years, you you lived this uh, psychedelic sadhu life, as yes. you mentioned. Yeah, that that sounds very interesting indeed. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that and how it was. You came upon TM, which you which you were going to teach for quite a lot of time, and and yes. eventually that was one of the nests that you you found yourself kicked out of. But uh, no. I wonder if you could tell us that story. Yeah. So. Um... I finished my first year of college. I was at San Francisco State College, and now it was June of 1967, uh, which, as you probably know, that was the summer of love. So I was in the right place at the right time. And I had started uh, doing some exploration with psychedelics in my last year or so of high school. Um, and. Um, so the idea of going back to school in the fall was just not so so right summer of 67 um and you know Sar sergeant pepper <laughs> hit the stands that june uh and uh and there was this sudden feeling the 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 oh and i went to um the monterey pop festival uh at at, at that time and and that you know, everyone knows about the music there, but that was what not everyone, I think, realizes. That was probably the first, maybe the second event. The earlier one was the the human being in Golden Gate Park uh, some months earlier with, with Tim Leary and Allen Ginsberg and, and that whole, whole cast of characters. Um, that those couple of events be, really became sort of uh, the gathering of the tribes. You know, there have been a lot of people kind of exploring on their own and, and you know, through psychedelics, uh, discovering quite uh, instantly, uh, oh, here is, you know, if it was not the opening to the infinite, it was some, some uh, uh, pretty provocative facsimile of it. Um, something that was enough to get a lot of people's attention. So what people realized was, oh, I'm not the only one. That, that this is like, this is a movement. This is a cultural movement. Uh, and there was a lot of excitement in the air. And there really was a feeling that 
oh, we're, we're, there's going to be this huge cultural shift where that the old model is, is, is out. Um, that, uh, I mean, I knew people whose plan was they were going to cut their hair, go to Washington, D.C., get a job as a waiter in the White House, slip acid into Lyndon Johnson's coffee cup, and then he and Ho Chi Minh would, you know, with a, with a rose in their teeth, you know, weeping tears of, of, of sorrow and love, and they would end the Vietnam War. Uh, that, that, you know, and a lot of it can sound silly in retrospect, but in the, the excitement of the moment, uh, this was the, this, this is what it felt like. There is, you know, there's a very interesting, um, uh, uh, un, so-called underground newspaper that was being, uh, published at the time, uh, the San Francisco Oracle. And, um, they published a piece that was a transcript and for for people who are really interested in the history of the of the era this this is a fascinating document they published a transcript of a sort of informal symposium that was held on uh, alan watts's houseboat uh, in i think tiburon just north of san francisco and it was uh alan watts alan ginsburg tim leary and one or two other people I don't remember. Well, Gary Snyder, I think. And the the title, the the the, the subject of discussion was "Drop Out or Take Over." As if we had that choice, you know. So yeah. So so in my wanderings in that time, I felt okay. This thing is going on, and I, you know, I would hitchhike into some place. I remember walking into some supermarket somewhere in. Oregon or somewhere, and I had, you know, big red blonde hair down to my shoulders and a beard. And, uh, and I was the first male adult that a lot of people had ever seen with long hair. I remember some woman in the aisle with her groceries just stopping in her track saying, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then I did discover that, uh, as I say in the book, that, that uh, the, the cops often were not very enthusiastic about their little Midwestern towns being invaded by long-haired psychedelic visionaries. So I did get lock, locked up a couple of times for, you know, hitchhiking, vagrancy, loitering, all of these, these euphemisms for being a hippie. That's very funny. And how did you come across TM? Was that during this wandering phase? Um, yeah, well, what happened was I had a couple of friends who had started and I had I had been reading the Bhagavad Gita and reading the Upanishads and some of the translations that were available at that time. And the impression that I got that a lot of people had were getting and historically, uh, for, for hundreds of years, many people have gotten the impression from those works that if you're serious about enlightenment, that what those books are telling you to do is you have to, you know, d d deny the world. You have to be a monk, essentially. Um, and um, that was, you know, and that's a tall order. Most of us are not built for that. Um, but then what happened was I, I came down with hepatitis. 
Um, and I had to go home back to my parents' place in the, you know, Los Angeles suburbs to recuperate. And while I was there, a friend of mine who'd started TM gave me a copy of uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's translation and commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, chapters one through six. He never, he never did the other 12 chapters. Uh, but what he does in his commentary on the Gita there is he parses each verse and says, no, this is not showing, this is not telling you that you have to be a monk, that, you know, that's too gross, that's too outward. They, what this, this is describing a state of consciousness where, uh, where you, the, um, you're, you're, you're realizing the nature of, of beingness, which is independent of the shifting conditions in the material world. It's not telling you you, you have to um, you know, put away the material world. Um, and that it, it doesn't involve necessarily, you know, long hours of, of meditation that also requires a monastic life. You can do it in 20 minutes twice a day. Well, that was, you know, an offer I couldn't refuse. It was, I, I had to try it. And uh, so I did, I learned TM. Um, I attended my first introductory lecture on TM at Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, which is about a mile from where I live now. And um, and the one of the instructions was that if you're you're sick, uh, don't do just the twenty minutes twice a day. You can do more. So I asked, uh, okay, I'm recuperating from hepatitis. How much should I meditate? And the fellow, uh, actually a man named Jerry Jarvis, a wonderful man who died a few years ago and was was kind of Marishi's right hand man in America, he said, well, more an hour in the morning, hour in the evening, half an hour in the afternoon. So that was quite a bit of meditation. I started doing it and I started waking up in the mornings with a big smile on my face. So I thought, okay, this stuff works. And this stuff, and I really kind of knew this even before I learned it. I said, one of the reasons I was motivated was that Marishi's whole packaging of it was, this was in a form that it's like, okay, I can bring this to the burbs. Right, because the the whole thing in that that 1967 summer of love moment uh, had been so much promulgated in the sense of um, uh, that it's a counterculture thing, right? And certain people who had personalities, you know, Tim Leary in a way was the worst at this, uh, you know, of making the, it us versus them, um, and. Uh, but I knew that the the mission, you know, you had to be able to bring this home to mom and dad. You had to be able to bring this to the suburbs. And, okay, 20 minutes twice a day, you don't have to believe in anything. You don't have to change your diet. You don't have to sit on, on the floor in the lotus pose. I said, hmm, that's, yeah, I, I probably the most brilliant bit of spiritual PR since St. Paul decided that if you wanted to follow Jesus, you didn't have to follow the kosher laws and get circumcised, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and it was brilliant. And Maharishi was just a brilliant, brilliant, uh, pivotal figure in bringing meditation and, and, and awakening uh, into mainstream Western culture. So, and, and it gave me an excuse to stop taking drugs because to, to learn TM, you had to uh, stop taking any kind of drugs for 15 days. 
So I got, had someone else outside to tell me, okay, you could, because I was getting so tired of going up and down like a yo-yo, you know, with, with the acid. And uh, so, yeah, that was, that was great. And, and uh, you know, Maharishi said, and so I knew I wanted to be a teacher of it. And, you know, Maharishi told us all, okay, but you got to cut your hair, go back, finish college, have a degree, wear a tie. Uh, it was great. I have photos of us on these long meditation retreats, six-month retreats with Maharishi. We're all in jackets and ties. It's hilarious. And that was in 1970 that you graduated as a teacher, and you went on to teach TM for 20 years. Yeah, until the early 90s, right. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a sense of the arc of your practice over that over that period of time you're teaching you're practicing you're in tm uh, yes. eventually you, as you mentioned uh, for various reasons which um, you can touch on if you'd like to i think it's very interesting you yeah. left the movement but uh, during during that time when you're when you're in, in the movement and you're teaching mm -hmm. and and practicing can you give us a sense of your own personal arc as a practitioner during that time yeah um Well, one thing, and Maharishi used to say this to, to the teachers, um, uh, and Maharishi, you know, he spoke in, in, in maxims. He would say these certain things over and over that I still have dozens of them in, in, in my head. And, um, and one of them was, uh, the teacher always gains more than the student. Uh, and and that's true of anything. I mean, you know, if 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 you want to master, I don't know, fishing or horseback riding or anything, uh, you know, music, anything, uh, uh, go out and teach it. Uh, and there is there and there is a real magic in in teaching a TM. Um, and you know, part of it is is just articulating the nuances of of not only during the the time of meditation, but the integration into into daily life. Um, and um, and, and Maharishi had us, you know, come back and spend time with him, ideally twice a year, you know, come on, on refresher courses and so forth. Uh, so the meditation itself was great. The teaching was great. What I started to see lacking was that the idea of, okay, just 20 minutes twice a day, set it and forget it. Um, uh, you know, and he framed it that way because as an antidote to what he called mood making, people making a mood of enlightenment. And I'm sure you've encountered people like that, you know, that they, they kind of whip up some attitude uh, sometimes they'll talk very softly, right? And it's it's like okay, we're we're all we're all very very enlightened here, um, and uh, and sort of as an antidote to that, uh, Maharishi, I think, you know, quite um, uh, brilliantly said, just meditate twice a day. It's like you know, taking a time release capsule and forget it. The it's the 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 settling down into the wakeful hypometabolic state what the ancients called Turiya, the fourth state, wakeful alertness, uh, 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 rather restful alertness, that, that that's a, a neurophysiological thing. It happens spontaneously. 
meditate and forget about it, plunge back into activity. And then relating that to the message of the Bhagavad Gita. You know, the, the, the two verses, his two favorite verses from the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, um, uh, uh, Nistra gunyo bhavarjun, you know, be without... Chapter 2, verse 45, be without the three gunas, O Arjuna. In other words, transcend the whole world of activity. That's meditation. And then chapter 2, verse 48, yoga sta kuru karmani. Established in yoga, established in, in this beingness, come out and perform dynamic action. You know, the advice given to Arjuna, the warrior, just before going into battle. Right? That's the model for, for the spiritual life, not not running away from from life so so that was all great but i started to realize that you know it it's it's not enough that that the other 23 hours of the day also can be a field for practice uh and it doesn't have to be mood making right that there is the that there is the there are practices of insight and self-inquiry and of noting um you know, simple things and simple human things, which in, in all my books, I try to emphasize these, that when you're, when you're for example, when you're the passenger in, in a car and you realize you don't have a lot of confidence in the person who's driving, <laughs> right? And you find yourself, your body tightening up and you find your right foot going for the, that non-existent passenger side brake, you know, stomping on that brake, you know what I'm talking about, right? And then realizing, oh, that brake doesn't work. It doesn't stop the car. It doesn't slow it down even a little bit. So either I'm going to say to the driver, listen, why don't you let me drive or sit back and relax? One or the other. Everything else in between is non-skillful. It's constrictive right and you know simple homely examples like that i find people really respond to they they really the stuff that you can feel somatically i go now how many other kinds of things like that are there in your life where you're you're going for that passenger side break right realizing that that doesn't work is powerfully liberative Right? So that's just one example. So, so that's a, one example of how the other 23 hours of the day when we're not meditating can all be used as opportunities for awakening. And, and so, so the TM program, Amarashi's teaching, didn't embrace that. Um, and also, you know, there was a lot of uh, kind of what you were saying before about the the Greeks, a lot of feeling of, okay, TM is the way, which had early on uh, appealed to my fanatical streak. <laughs> but later on, you know, the, 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 the dogmatism of it just, just started to get to be um, uh, too constrictive. Uh, and Marashi started going into some f funny directions that I just couldn't follow. Um, uh, the, the thing that was the final straw for me. So I mentioned I was teaching this literature of enlightenment course, uh, at the Pingree school and for the, the meditation component, they were all learning TM and I was teaching them the orthodox way within the TM organization. And they were all paying the, what was the standard fee for 
uh, high school students at the time, which was $85. And I always made it clear anyone, most of these kids came from wealthy families, but I said anyone who, for whom that's a problem, come to me quietly, we'll arrange a scholarship. It was great. One, it was in the summer of 1993, uh, and I was out in California with my, here with my mom who was, was dying of cancer. And my, my wife, uh, back at home, Maggie, um, got the word from the TM organization that they were raising the prices. And now instead of the high schoolers paying $85, they, they had to pay $2,500. And, and we spent the whole summer, um, this was before the days of, of email, you know, so sending letters and faxes and leaving voice messages, trying to reach someone in the organization to say, okay, you can have a special dispensation and teach at the old price because I knew that otherwise it was going to, you know, the, the, it, it was going to wreck my program. I couldn't charge the kids that. And I never heard back from anyone in the organization. Actually, a year later, I heard back from someone's secretary. Oh, you're having a problem? I said, no, way too late. That, that ship has sailed. And it was great because actually I wound up later that summer attending a retreat in Brighton Bush Hot Springs in Eastern Oregon with Ram Dass, who was always just such a wonderful, open, human uh, approach to these things. Very, as, as they say in Yiddish, very Hamish uh, uh, approach to these things. And, um, uh, and he had a number of younger teachers doing afternoon workshops and various kinds of meditation and so forth. And I made the great discovery, which was, see the key thing about TM, I, I failed to mention this, is effortlessness. Effort, that, that, that true meditation is always effortless that uh, as, uh, I know you've interviewed Rupert Spira, uh, and, and Rupert puts this, as he puts most things, quite brilliantly. Um, uh, you know, people think that, um, um, that meditation is something that you do, but meditation is, is what you are, right? So any, the way I put it is, um, any effort to create a non-agitated state of mind is itself a form of agitation, right? So that's the catch. Anytime people talk about trying to meditate, that's the catch-22. Trying to meditate doesn't work. So the skill of, of teaching meditation is pulling that rug of effort out from under people so that they go, oh, free fall. This is so much uh, simpler and easier and faster and, and it works. Um, but Maharishi had kind of, you know, um, part of the whole TM doctrine was that uh, everyone else teaches effort, where TM is the only method that teaches effortlessness. And what I discovered that summer uh, in Brighton Bush Hot Springs with these other teachers was, no, they, 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 there's other, um, uh, TM does not have a monopoly on effortlessness. So it was great. That was that, that fall I was able to go back to school and continue to teach the kids meditation um, without TM and I was out of that nest and you know what all the books that I've written and 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 would have been impossible if I'd stayed in the TM nest and I have friends who've been in that nest for all this time for decades 
um, some of them dear friends and uh, you know and some of them are great they're fine they have a kind of very relaxed open attitude about things and some of them it's just it's really hard to talk to them they're so kind of stuck and so blinded but I could say that about people stuck in any you know system of doctrine hmm. any fixed view any 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 fixed view uh, that that's exactly right and you can see with you know whether it whether it's a it's a you know a, a doctrinaire TM teacher or a, or a fundamental what it is it's fundamentalism uh, of any stripe and I think in any spiritual organization or movement or teaching you find people who are the fundamentalists and and the people who are you know mellow for for lack of a better word uh yeah that's that's very interesting indeed you know i i think we could talk in, in even greater depth on on that subject but i am curious about what it's like to leave an organization like that to 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 find yourself i suppose outside of that spiritual um identity or that spiritual group belonging i'm not sure if, how, how much how much of uh, the tm organization supplied those things for you but what was it like leaving i know later on you've also studied vajrayana buddhism and mm -hmm. advaita and mm -hmm. bhakti yoga and even mm -hmm. umbanda which is mm -hmm. i'd really like to hear about about those things and perhaps a, some sort of potted history what was that mm -hmm. period like after you left tm you know i wrote about the i, I wrote a book um in 2005 called um cinema nirvana enlightenment lessons from the movies the the cover shows a, a golden buddha clutching a, a box of popcorn and and i did in that book pretty much what i do for literature in in the dharma bums guide um and i take deliberately movies that you would not think of as being uh as having spiritual content so i take films like the godfather and snow white and the seven dwarfs casablanca the graduate and and kind of open them up uh to see the uh the 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 dharma content of them unintentionally there but there and the chapter and by the way, I have to give a lot of credit to Maharishi for uh, helping me develop that skill. You know, I was a teaching assistant uh, in the first couple of years of when he founded a university starting in 1973, Maharishi International University. And the whole approach there was to teach the standard disciplines of you know, physics and literature and music and all that in the light of enlightenment. So that really, that would, I, you know, I took to that like a duck to water. Um, someone pointed out to me recently, though, they said, yeah, Dean, but you know what? Of all the, all of us who, who taught there in those days, you're the one who has really taken that thing, that, that looking at, that into places where we don't expect to find Dharma and, and finding it there. So, oh, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Well, thanks, I guess. So in any case, in that book, Cinema Nirvana, uh, I write about my experience of, of kind of coming up against the, the more cultish aspects of the TM movement and having to finally leave it. And I did it in my chapter on invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> 
and 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 in particular there's there's a moment in in invasion of the body snatchers where there's only two people left in town who who've not been taken over by the emotionless aliens you know who who become like replicants of their bodies um uh, Kevin McCarthy and uh, I forget the, the the woman's name, and they're they're going to have to navigate through the town and pretend that they've been taken over. And 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 she's asking, well, how are we going to do it? And he said, just keep a, a I forget the exact line, something like just keep a a, a vague smile and a blank look in your eyes. And I went, oh, I've seen that face. That's 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 the face of 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 my my fellow you know d d d cultists, um, but I tell the story in that chapter of uh, a few months I think it was after you know I really left that TM nest, and I had brought up from the basement a a box that had all my old notebooks from my years of going on courses and retreats with Maharishi. Page after page after page of, of these meticulous notes in handwriting, you know, far more, far neater than anything I'm capable of now. And, and here and there in the margins, joyful little poems of awakening and Jay Gurudev and, you know, so forth. And, and I was just and and I was sitting there at the bottom of the stairs going through this and my wife came in and I was just sitting there looking at it and weeping and I looked up at her and I said I was a good disciple you know and so I understand that sincerity of that commitment and which in itself is is a is a you know it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing but, you know, sometimes it's time to move on. And how did you find your way? Well, it was helpful to um, uh, one of the, uh, actually a, a couple of the, the younger teachers at that Ramdas retreat in 1993 uh, were connected with Vajrayana teaching, specifically Dzogchen. Um, and um, so I started seeking out some, you know, uh, teachers of, of Dzogchen um, and, and started getting more into the Buddhist teaching um, and, um, and just got tremendous, you know, and, you know, you know, I mean, obviously the, you know, the basic, the teachings of the Buddha, the four, the four noble truths, um, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, I, I, you you see that everywhere. It's just, you know, the, the, to me, the four noble truths are like laws of physics. <laughs> it's just, just the the way it is. It's not a doctrine. It's 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 an it's an you know, if the Buddha were around today, he'd be considered I don't know maybe a you know a sociologist. Uh, he, he, the four noble truths are observations of oh, this is how people screw themselves up, and this is how you know they could stop doing that any time. That's the cessation of suffering. Who did you study with? Um, I studied with um, mainly. I found myself with with uh, Western Buddhist teachers. Uh, one was um, Nakshang Rinpoche, uh, who's actually he's 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 uh, British. He's Welsh. Um, 
spent some some time with him. Very colorful character. He wrote wrote just fabulous, hilarious poetry. Um, so Nakchung Rinpoche and um, uh, in America, I wound up uh, spending quite a bit of time with um, uh, an American, another Jewish boy from Long Island like myself, Lama Surya Das. Um, and actually, my, f my late first wife, Maggie, uh, wound up being kind of a right-hand person to him on his, um, his retreats. Uh, and um, so I went on a lot of his retreats, often you know, a month at a time during the summers, and, and, uh, and, and that was great yeah. at the time. Okay, I, I can't let it slide. Umbanda. <laughs> um, yeah, let, let, let me just mention, uh, I don't want to go into it now, but that the, just for the record, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the Zogchen Foundation, Lama Suryadas, eventually became a nest also that I had to, to leave. Um, uh, yes, Umbanda, I, I ran into that. Actually, one of my Buddhist teachers, a wonderful um, Buddhist teacher from Switzerland named Charles Genoux, um, uh, just, just a brilliant, brilliant teacher. And, and he and his wife somehow got involved with, with Umbanda, uh, some, some Umbanda teachers from Brazil. Uh, so I, I, I had some involvement with that for a, for a while and, and um, um, you know, would, would participate in their, I can't remember the word now, it's, it's a Brazilian word for, for circle, uh, um, their rituals, um, and I was actually learning to, to drum in those, which was great. Um, got some very uh, valuable things, but that turned out after a while to be um, not something to continue to, to time into. Why not? Um, there, there was a point where to, to really to continue to participate in that in a, in a wholehearted way, there was a certain kind of leap uh, that one had to make that I, I felt I could not make that leap sincerely. What would you consider your, I don't know, this is a bit of a strange question, maybe spiritual mm -hmm. orientation to be now? Are you a, in, are you an independent mystic now uh do you you know you've spoken about all of these influences yeah positively even mm -hmm. though many of them as you say you reached a point where you departed from them mm -hmm. um you've spoken highly of your your rooting in tm and all that that gave mm -hmm. you effortless meditation which is a, a big mm -hmm. theme of your teaching actually mm -hmm. um what would you do you consider yourself to have a spiritual home or an orientation or a north star now um I uh, you know I'm 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 pre There was a point where I realized um that we're eventually supposed to grow up you know we're that 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 eventually um uh, you know I'm 72 years old and uh and and I realized at a certain point we're we're supposed to become the elders uh, that that people rely on, um, and uh, and 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 
you know, I've, I've just tried to use everything that I've encountered uh, in my experience, in my reading, in my understanding, and, and use that to become uh, available to people through my teaching, through my books. Um, I would say the closest thing I have at the moment to a home, to, to someone, to, to, for my reality check, uh, is Rupert Spira. Um, I mean, Rupert is just, uh, you, you just, I think if you look up clarity in the dictionary, uh, there's a picture of Rupert there. I, I think that with any kind of spiritual teaching or teacher, there's a there's a ratio. I think this this may be a useful way to think about it. There's the there's a ratio of the juice to the bullshit. You know, the juice is the stuff that you go there for. There's all the great the ah here's the liber here's the power of the the methods the te the the revelatory power of the teachings all that. And then here's you know the the personality quirks of the teacher. Here's the, the the pain in the ass aspects of the organization. Here's the the certain amount of doctrine or whatever that you're expected to swallow. There's always a certain amount. There's always a certain ratio, and it's when the ratio becomes no longer workable that if if you're paying attention, you leave. All right. I would have to say, I'm, Rupert, of all the, the teachers and teachings I've encountered, he's the one where I've never seen where the ratio was so high, just pretty much pure juice. And, um, you know, I was on a retreat with him recently, and someone at the beginning of the, the first meeting of, of the, it was a one-week retreat, had put some flowers up on his table there where, where he was going to sit. And the first thing he did was he, he, he had someone take them away. And he very graciously said, oh, thanks very much. That's too much like being, he said in his British way, too much like being a proper guru. Right? And, you know, he's just so alert to all those, the, the, the ways that one can slip in that. So I, I, I deeply appreciate that, having seen so many slips happen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Well, this has been so fascinating. Um, uh, thank you for being so open uh, in exploring your your uh, your experiences here. The the book we mentioned it, the Dharma Dharma Guide to uh, the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature. You know, I have my favorite chapters. Um, I like the one a lot on the Gats, the Great Gatsby. I like the Virginia Woolf chapter very much. These are some earlier chapters. I enjoyed them a lot. Um, what's your you know? We can't possibly go into it. So all I'll say to people listening right. is buy it and read it because it's really good. Mm -hmm. But um, what's your favorite chapter? Uh, that's what I'm curious about. And also, mm -hmm. if it's an anecdote that's that's easy to tell, I don't want to, to kidnap you here and keep you hostage in this podcast. What was the most difficult chapter to write? I'm also kind of curious about that. Mm. Um, and, and then and then maybe we can say a little about your website and, and your meditations that you offer, your free meditations and all these sorts of things. But let, let's just... Look, you're looking through the contents, I see. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm looking for the... I just love how you ask questions, Steve, that other people don't ask. Um, I'd have to think about what's the most difficult. Uh, I've, if I had to pick one as my favorite, it would be uh, Emily Dickinson. Uh, I mean, partly it's it's her, of course. You know, the the, the, the person who writes, you know, not revelation tis that waits 
but our unfurnished eyes. I mean, that is pure, non-dual, that is Zogchen in the highest, right? That the thing that we're looking for, we think it's going to be some revelation, some some text, some content, some understanding, or even some, some, some experience, that, because that also is content. It's going to be purple flames shooting out of our crown chakra or something. That's all revelation, and that's all. none of that is it. It's our unfurnished eyes. It's, it's not anything, no matter how spectacular, that we can be aware of. It's awareness itself. She was there, sitting alone in her second floor bedroom in Amherst, Massachusetts. How does that happen? That, that it's so brilliant. So just her writing, her, and something about the way the whole shape and rhythm of that chapter came out for me, I, I was very pleased with. The music, you know, I, coming from a family of musicians, I'm very tuned into the music of writing. Uh, the rhythm, and also my my wife. Um, I'm now married for for the second time. My my first wife passed in 2004, and um, um, my wife now Yatha Larea is a superb documentary um, film editor and actually producer now. And so I learn a lot from her about r rhythm and structure and 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 arc. And something about that chapter, I felt, yeah, I got this one right. Yeah, I don't know what would be the, the most difficult. Um, they, 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 they're all, none of them are difficult. All of them are impossible uh, until you do it. There's some, there's some quality of walking through a wall. Every time I, just about, that I start a book or start a chapter or start a day's writing, there's, oh no, this can't be done. This can't be done. And then, you know, you force yourself to do it. And it's like, oh, no, this is terrible. I'm writing shit. And fortunately, I've been through it enough times to know that what you do is, okay, you keep writing shit. And after a while, something happens. You go through the wall. You find, and especially when you realize, oh, no, this, this is the chapter. This is the one where I'm going to have to stop and apologize to the publisher and send the advance back. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, I, there's no way for me to w make it work. This is where I've met my Waterloo. When, whenever that happens on that chapter, that's the one that's, that is, it turns out to be just great because you had to go somewhere that you didn't think you could go. Mm -hmm. What's your routine, writing routine? Um, I have to have a, a contract and a deadline. Otherwise, it's there's you know, it's much too easy to just sit around playing my ukulele and you know walk into the beach, um, and uh, you know get up in the morning, have a nice breakfast with my wife, uh, make excuses and distractions for a while. Eventually, get around to it. Uh, decide it's impossible. Keep going. Then after a while, I catch fire, and um, go for a while. Then it's time for dinner. <laughs> Great, uh, Dean. This has been so so wonderful. Can you say a little something about all you, the many things you're doing? You have the film filmosophers podcast. You have your free um, meditations each week. You offer those. Um, can you say a little bit about about the whole, that range of activities and where people can find out more about you? Yes, if they come to my website deanslider.com, and you'll be showing them how to spell that. Uh, because it's a Dutch name and it's got a U in it. That, S, we should say it, S-L-U-Y-T-E-R, 
U-S-L-U-Y. U-Y as in buy, as in guy. Uh, yeah, so deanslider.com, and there you can uh, connect with my uh, Zoom meditations, which usually are three times a week. And Fridays I do it in the mornings so that it's, it works as an evening time for, for, for people in, in Europe and thereabouts. I've got one guy who dials in from Morocco, um, and, um, uh, and that's free. It's open to everyone. And also, I have a YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and, you know, and, and, and search for Dean Slider, where I've got a number of my sessions archived there. Hmm. Uh, I've got you know, five other books that I wrote. All of that's on, on my website. Mm -hmm. this, has been, this has been fascinating. I'd love to invite you back for a, a sequel sometime and maybe we can discuss some of those books uh, your, your book about uh, movies for example I think that would be very interesting to dive into that um, but but anyway regardless this has been so great uh, Dean Slider thank you very much thank you so much Steve thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast for more interviews like these as well as articles videos and guided meditations visit www.guruviking.com <laughs>